Hey everyone, welcome to the premiere of season two of the Contiki Podcast, the place to get your double feature film recommendations from some of your favorite artists, musicians, and filmmakers. I'm your host, Eric Mahoney, broadcasting to you from Brooklyn, New York. Uh, hold on, hold on, I gotta I got crank this part up. Oh, that is so good. Fugazi. That sounds every bit as fantastic to me as it did over 25 years ago as a teenager. Such a phenomenal band. And featuring today's guest, Ian Mackay on vocals and guitar. You might also know Ian as the frontman of the band Minor Threat or from his uh, record label Discord Records. Uh, he also has a new album on the horizon uh, from his latest project, Kariki. Today, we're also setting a, a bit of a precedent on the show as uh, Ian refused to give a double feature film recommendation. Uh, he'll, he'll explain why uh, in the episode, but um, he wanted to simply come on and discuss film in general and uh, some of the movies and genres that resonated most with him. And so I was happy to oblige. Ian is a great conversationalist, as you will hear, and uh, we got to cover a lot of ground. One slight technical note for this episode is uh, I had a microphone malfunction about 30 seconds near the end of our conversation, so this will flip over to a, uh, to a different sounding recording for the last wrap-up. So if you notice that, you are not going crazy. Uh, we just have a little bit of a different, a different sounding sign-off. So uh, without further ado, let's get into my conversation with Ian McKay. So I'm just gonna, I'm starting the recording now. I'm just gonna I'm gonna say it's uh, this is Ian McKay in Washington D.C. It's May 14th, 2020, and I'm speaking to you. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. Well, how are you, man? Everything is good. Just finished practicing. Just finished practicing and just poking at the projects. I have an enormous amount of. Project. I was just writing to a friend of mine, and I said that I think that I'm, I think one of the aspects of sheltering in place or being hunkered down is that <clears throat> with no diversions, the things that kept waiting, really, there's no excuse at this point, you know, to make them wait any longer. But the problem is I have such a preponderance of things waiting that it's, it's crazy. I have so many huge projects, things that are more archival for the most part. Um, I don't I mean, I'm not a hoarder, but I have a lot of stuff. I just, you know, but also, I'm, 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 my life is unusual. I mean, I'm 58 years old and I've essentially lived in three houses my entire life. I own two of them and my dad still lives in the first one. So I didn't have to move. And since I didn't have to move, I also didn't, I mean, I didn't have to make those kind of painful decisions. Yeah, the moving is the ultimate cleanse. Uh, every time that happens, yeah, for sure. So if you're, yeah, if you're, if you're in the same place, uh, you can always find another corner to put things in. I find. Right, and if you own, if you have two houses, that's a lot of corners. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Right. <laughs> exactly. Well, yeah. Thanks for being on, man. And I know over the course of our email correspondence, you know, you were, you were, um, 
very clear that you would not be confined to the parameters of giving me a double feature. So that's okay. We, we can we can talk about movies <laughs> if you'd like. If you if you don't want to be cornered yeah. in to the uh, to the uh, very specific. I'm happy to discuss films. I think I think part of my problem is I don't think in terms of lists. And there's a tendency for people to ask for your top five of this or that or the other thing. Um, and even a double feature, which is a sort of a, <clears throat> an abbreviated form of the same thing, you know, like, although there was a time in my life where I saw a lot of movies and I was really um, keenly interested in film. I mean, I actually made movies when I was about 11 or 12, and I really thought that I was going to make movies. Um, I made Super 8 films. They were all edited in, in camera, but they were narratives. You know, they actually were, you know, mostly um, my rather crude and juvenile attempts to remake um, like The French Connection or do you ever see do you ever the movie Seven Ups with Roy Scheider it's a oh yeah do you yeah. know the French do you know that yeah do you remember that film it's an like incredible car chase scene and French like that era, like masterpiece yeah. French, yeah right French Connection but like all those, that era and I those movies really um, uh, they just turned me on as you know when I was 12 11 12 13 years old I think the French Connection actually was the first R-rated movie I ever saw. My father took to see me see it at the uh, Georgetown Theater here in Washington. Very exciting to see that, and um, so I made a movie that was. Um, I had a movie called The Narcs, which was about a drug deal that goes bad. <laughs> it's really funny, but I also had developed, you know, I I was I had, was using my own version of squibs. I was using sandwich bags and filling them with um, <laughs> clear caro syrup with red dye. Nice. And then you tie you make you you tie it to it super tight and then the the actor will hold the the bag in their hand when you shoot them in the chest they smack their hand <laughs> on their chest and the and the syrup, the, the red syrup shoots everywhere. Oh shit, sorry, my phone is wrong. Hold on. Sorry. The other phone. Too many phones. Hold on. Hey, let me call you back. I'm in the middle of something, right? All right, bye-bye. Sorry about that. Um, so, yeah, so I used to, um, you know, and, and they were, and some of those films were, there was some real bloodletting going on, a lot of shooting going on. Um, and I made a, I made a movie called um, John Bond, Son of James Bond, which was a, it's called I think called The Wind from the East or something. It was about Russian spies. I mean, I can't say that, you know, I mean, these were done as a, I was like a little kid. Um, and then I became a skateboarder, you know, so I wasn't thinking like, wow, this is my, you know, I did, I think that I had dreamt that I would make movies or something or I was going to be an actor or something that wasn't really appealing to me. You know, it's funny. I suppose it could have been film, but um Maybe I would have done that, but music was, you know, something that I was really fixated on. Even my earliest, strongest film memories were all have to do with music. So, um, um, like how so? What do you mean by that? Well, of course, my, you know, like the earliest kind of cartoon I remember looking at was the Beatles cartoon. They had a, you know, on television, and and you know, in terms of narrative films, you know, like a movie like Harold and Maude really had an effect on me and Cat Stevens soundtrack on there is just phenomenal. And so I think it may be one of the first movies that had like a really I think like really specific commissioned soundtrack by one artist. Like the 
you know, and I can still think of the songs that are, you know, in that film. Um, that film I just thought was brilliant as a kid. I love I mean, I haven't seen it in years, but I still think about it. And I still have so many scenes, you know, when Ruth Gordon throws, he gives her the ring and then she, or, and she just throws it in the river. And Bud Cord is just appalled. Like he's just looking at her like, what did you just fucking do? And then she says, now we'll always know where it is, you know. And it's like, th those kids, really brilliant, great, great film, I thought. A gift. Harold loves Maud. And Maud loves Harold. This is the nicest present that I've received in years. So I always know where it is. But in, but in, and those are just in turn a narrative film, but then, you know, the <clears throat> Monterey Pop and then Woodstock. Well, I saw Woodstock probably 20 times. I'll still look at Woodstock. I actually have bought every version of Woodstock as it comes out because I'm, I think that film is incredible. Um, and if you haven't done so, I would highly recommend you read, uh, I think Dale Bell wrote a book called Woodstock the Movie. It's about the story of making the film. And it's an incredible piece of work. It's a great book. This book is great. And when they talk about, have you, I mean, I assume you've seen Woodstock. I have seen it so many times and I, I feel kind of the same way about it. My wife was actually just chastising me like a few weeks ago because I was watching it. Um, if I'm like surfing any, any sort of like, you know, platform and, I, and, it, and it comes up or even a documentary about the making of it or a documentary yep. on anything, yep. anything related yep. to it. For some reason, if I hit play, I yep. will go down the rabbit hole and watch the like three hours of it. That, that event and that, um, everything that happened to do with, with that, with pulling that thing off from the film to the actual event itself is utterly fascinating to me and I will always watch it. Well, yeah, then I can recommend a few different books for you. So that film, you know, had a profound effect on me. Um, and I was, you know, became pretty obsessed with that, with, with Woodstock in general, but I knew the, mostly I knew it through, I mean, I knew it the record, of course, and then the film and, and as a young kid, I, you know, would, <clears throat> when my family would go on vacation, I would usually be scouting for location for my, my festival. Because I really took the, the sort of, I had my sense was, like, I really believed, my idealism was like, oh, yeah, these kids got together and nobody won money. It was just a great, you know, like, I didn't, you know, obviously, as I've gotten older, I've read more and more about what was going on business-wise. And I also know a lot more about music business, obviously, um, after 40 years. But um, uh, so, you know, I'm a little bit, a little disabused of some of the kind of, of the sort of, you know, the um, super shiny aspects of it. But uh, it's still incredible. And, and, and some of the, and the playing was, you know, there's some such great performance. Some of those performances are just fantastic. This is the largest group of people ever assembled in one place. The important thing that you've proven to the world 
is that a half a million kids, and I call you kids because I have children older than you are, a half a million young people can get together and have three days of fun and music and have nothing but fun and music. And I God bless you for it. So that was a really heavy film thing for me. And then um, the only movie that I was ever forbidden to see was Gimme Shelter. My dad didn't want me to see it. Cause I was that's uh, I was just going to ask you. That's that's really strange. I was like on the tip of my tongue. I was just going to say, well, on the flip side of this coin, what do you think about Gimme Shelter? <laughs> well, it's funny. He actually, my father forbid me from seeing it. Um, I mean, that's too strong, but he didn't want me to see it because he didn't want me to see a murder. And he knew there was a actual murder um, in in the film. Um, but it was playing at a, um, there was a place called the Circle Theater. It had two screens, um, the Circle and the Inner Circle. And so I went to go see a movie at the Circle, and then I slipped over to the Inner Circle and watched Gimme Shelter, which was also an incredible piece of work. Um, and, and, the, and, and it was scary as a kid. It was scary to see it and very, very heavy and had a really dark effect, you know, like on me, like, you know, in terms of <clears throat> the kind of the gravity of that situation. But I also love the way those films were made. Like, I just love that kind of documentary. I like documentaries where you're not being told by somebody, um, no narrator. And even more importantly, like just the thinnest of narrative arcs. I find modern documentaries to be, um, they're entertaining, but they're, I find them troubling. Right. Because they're, you know, because they're, because you can almost see the index cards on the bulletin board, right? You know, the pegboard, like saying, okay, well now we got to cover this and now this, and now we need, we need quotes to, you know, to, to support this part of the narrative arc that we've built, like the storyline, and I just don't think that's the way life is. Well, certainly catching something in the moment, it for me is is really paramount. I mean, that if you, if you can if you can get something as it's happening in the moment, like those festivals, for instance. Um, I mean, that's you know, that's just it's an incredible feat of timing. I agree with you, but it's not enough for this. Like, it's not enough for just to wait for the moment to arrive. You actually have to know how to look at the moment. And sometimes it's when you look at the way the way the photographer looks at a moment. That's the that's the beauty of it. Um, and the same with you know Woodstock. There's just moments where there's like these really beautiful. Like it's just the way it's shot. It's like that's what that's the difference. It's not just it's not just this sort of you know got it because you did something cool. It's how you got it. And sometimes it's what's what makes what makes it cool is actually the way it was gotten. But that, you know, that's just how, that's to me why I'm so interested in, um, like, I think, you know, Pinnebaker and the Maisel Brothers, all those guys, they were just, they had good eyes. <laughs> they were, it wasn't just, it wasn't just good, they, it wasn't, they just had good stories. They had good eyes. Yeah. Yeah, they absolutely did. They, well, and the way that in which Gimme Shelter was constructed was really brilliant. I mean, the, the tension of the back like half hour of that film is so palpable to me. I mean, just uh, just the way that things are just ramping up and you're just feeling the that just how off that situation was and how it continued to just sort of spiral out of control. I mean, it's so palpable watching it. It's almost like watching a horror film 
um, when I when I watch that movie. It really is. It's just deeply unsettling to me, um, but but very well crafted and and really 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 brilliant um, editing on that. I, I think. And right there's and there's and, and you there's and you don't there's like you know. There's no narrator. No, no. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. You just... You right. Just, and yet somehow the story is communicated. And that is a documentary to me. So are, do you favor music docs, do you think, more than others? I mean, or, or do you, are you all over the doc space? or? No, I mean, no. I mean, I, like, I just depend... I mean, I think music is, uh, you know, certainly a discipline of mine. So, I mean, I think I'm really... I'm, I'm more... I'm very interested in that. Um... But it just depends, you know. Like I thought, once were kings, or when, when we were kings. I sorry, when we were kings, that was an incredible piece of work. You know, there's a scene where, do you remember where George Foreman comes off the plane? Yes, yes. He has and his dog. He's got some German yep. shepherds, <laughs> and then this is like such a. Well, you know, Fugazi has a song called Foreman's Dog. It's a reference to that. Foreman's dog, George Foreman's dog. <laughs> it's like that's the. That was like it was like it's a you know. It was, you know, we'd seen that movie and we were so, like, just completely mesmerized by it. But that was such an interesting detail. Um, well, how Muhammad Ali sort of uh, painted him as, as an oppressor <laughs> to the people of that country and, and, and a villain and vilified him um, was, 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 I mean, uh, it was a psychological feat that I've never seen. I mean, that, that is incredible to do, to actually, like, you know, get an entire nation to rally behind you for a sporting event like that um, was pretty incredible. It was pretty incredible. Agreed. Um, so yeah, that was a, that was a powerful film. Um, now I used to work at a movie theater. I was a, I was a usher. I worked there for at the Georgetown theater as a matter of fact for years. In the beginning we were a rep house and we showed, um, I think, you know, Annie Hall for like six months or something. We did two, we double featured a lot of times, Annie Hall and Hannah and her sister, no, uh, Manhattan and Annie Hall. I think we showed those for a long time and we showed, oh God, there's so many films. Like, is there one called The Lieutenant's Wife or something? I can't remember. There's so many films we showed. Um, but then towards the, uh, I would have been just, I guess it was probably about 19, I forgot what year it came out, but um, Bob Guccione's Caligula came out. And this was a film that was, <clears throat> started out as, a, as I understand it, was being, was sort of, initially, he was putting money into it and it was going to be a pretty straight film um, with some debauchery in it, you know, Malcolm McDowell and... Uh, John Gilgood and Peter O'Toole. Anyway, um, and I guess what I understand, as I understand it, Guccione and the director fell out. I think Gore Vidal was a was one of the screenplay people worked on the screenplay. But in any event, I guess Guccione fell out with him, and he just took over the film, and he edited in a ton of super hardcore pornography, like super super hardcore pornography and it was unrated they could, he couldn't get a rating on it and therefore he couldn't get it into he couldn't get any distribution <laughs> right but Gucci, Guccione just basically he four-walled theaters meaning that he would just go to an independent theater and just rent it lock stock and barrel and Georgetown Theater was one of those theaters he you know he rented it um 
he just took over the whole building and we and the staff. So we were working for him basically. He charged at that time movies were three dollars and fifty cents for a ticket. He just said straight up six bucks, which was I mean, no one could believe this, but he sold out every screening of this movie when it first came on. Furthermore, he they were my boss was really concerned about people coming through the back door. Like that was a pretty that was what people should do all the time. You get in and then you open the back door and people come in. But because these shows were all sold out, we couldn't have that happening. So what this meant was that somebody, an usher, would have to stay in the theater at all times. And because it was a porn film, essentially, um, that person had to be over 18. And I happened to be the only 18-year-old. And I saw that movie. Like, I worked Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. And I saw it three times every night or whatever, two night, two times on Mondays and Wednesdays and three times on Fridays. I'd have to stand in there and watch that movie <laughs> over and over and over. Um, and it was kind of comedic. It was like there was a uh, – there were scenes or – the. You start. I started to understand the 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 construction of the film, and there's scenes sort of peppered. It starts out with like a really super hardcore violent kind of scene, but there's a series of really unbelievable unpleasantries that would just at some point cumulatively would drive people out of the theater. So in the very beginning, there's a scene where a guy is caught a guard is caught napping. Um, so uh, I think it's Tiberius is the Caesar at the time, and he forces this guy. Um, they tie off his dick and they they force wine in his. Oh, he's drinking on duty. That's right. He says, "Bring this man more wine." So they tie off his dick and they use a funnel to pour wine into his stomach till he can't, you know, and he can't pee it out. And then when he's like in total agony, they just gut him. <laughs> this is like the in the first five minutes of the film, right? <laughs> And people, I mean, people just paid $6. And the first thing, I, and people just, like, I see a couple get up and walk out, like, oh, we're not watching this. And then later on, there's, like, a scene where somebody gets fisted, and there's a scene where there's, a, you know, people's heads are being chopped off. And it's just really, like, a lawnmower that chops off people's heads. And and then just, you see people like, no, we're done, you know. And I could, I knew, I know when the scene's coming, I, I could almost tell who was going to leave. It was fantastic. Bob Guccione and Penthouse Films International present Caligula. You amateur. Amateur? No treachery could equal his evil. No evil was more treacherous. He's mad! Caligula, the emperor who devoured Rome. Um, but yeah, that was, so I was, and I knew that, I knew quite a bit about, you know, I studied those films. Uh, you know, I watched, not Caligula, but I watched a lot of, you know, 70s films, because that's what was on offer at the time. And then after Caligula, um, we that was there for years, by the way. It ended up being a midnight movie. Um, but my boss realized that, really, that's where the money was. So he started showing porn. And at that time, of course, porn, when you showed hardcore porn, it was your lunch hour where you made all the money. Because men, you know, they... They got off work. They had a lunch hour, and that they could come to the theater and see sex on the screen. They can't. There was you couldn't see it at home. There was no video, right? There was no internet, so they can't go out to see the movies at night. So they would leave. They'd come see porn. You have a rush hour at you know twelve. Wow. Yeah, and I had a friend who worked at a movie theater 
And also, uh, in the same neighborhood as the Georgetown, it's in the neighborhood called Georgetown, and they, she works at a movie theater called, I think it was called The Biograph. It was a biograph, yeah. And she worked the, the ticket counter and the, and the um, concession stand, and as it turned out, she was really the projectionist because they just had a VCR under the counter, and they would just put tapes in and play the porn. It was just hooked up to their projector. So they would change their, they had like a whole set of porn films you know, they, they're, they're all on video. So that was her, you know, that was sort of their, um, their you know, their go-to pile. And they would change the titles and just put them on. And at some point, there was some tape in the machine and she was just showing every day. They were showing, and whatever, with the, and the, the movie was called, I don't know, Wild Girls or something. And the same guys would come pretty regularly. <laughs> And she said after like four or five days, this guy came out. He goes, you know, that's not Wild Girls. Like nobody had said a word. <laughs> it was like some other movie called, you know, I don't know, like Randy Chick or whatever. But it was she didn't even know because no one even she had no one no one had mentioned it. Like men had been coming in and then leaving, but no one ever said like, you know, that's actually not the movie. Not that that's that matters at all. Because nobody paid any attention. Anyway, that was it. Was all really interesting. It's funny. I, there's a lot of things like this I never thought about. There's another thing like I never saw a movie by myself. As a, I just never would have occurred to me to see a movie by myself. It just seemed like it seemed sad. Like you didn't have any friends. That's what I used to think. And I talked to a friend of mine, and they said you're crazy. It's the best way to see a film because you don't have to talk about it with anybody. You don't have to wonder whether they're liking it or don't like it. It doesn't matter. You can just experience it on your own. And yeah, I, I, I like I was, it too, to be honest. Yeah, I, I yeah. do too. And I didn't start doing that until I was way an adult. But right. once I started doing it, it is great. And it's like, it's great to like go, especially at like noon or something, um, where you right. have like the whole place to yourself. Ah, oh, it's the, it's like you, it's, yeah, it's almost, uh, it's almost lavish. You, you have like this, right. uh, you have your own movie theater. You can like spread out and you know, yeah, you don't have to talk to anyone. You can just completely be engaged and, and just be in your own world. It's kind of awesome. And I, you know, I have to say, I still have, don't ever do that really. But I was riding my bike up again through Georgetown. And there's another theater there called the key um, that showed a lot of, it was an independent house. These are all independent houses or, you know, at the time, this is all in the, I guess, eighties or maybe there's the nineties now. I don't know. Um, but I was riding my bike up and as I was going by the key, I looked over at the marquee and I saw it was like this large Van Trier film. And I had just been hearing about Dogma 95, which I was really interested in. And it was this movie, Breaking the Waves, which is actually a little pre-Dogma 95, I think. Oh, yeah. Have you ever seen that, that film? Yeah, oh, it is. That is a Jesus heavy Christ. film. And I went, that's the first movie I ever saw by myself. And boy, that was crazy feeling. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> that would fuck me up if I had to watch that alone in a theater, especially. Yeah. It was a really oh, man. powerful film. Um, I was very <laughs> yeah. interested in the Dog Dogma 95 stuff because I liked... But I do think... <clears throat> I think one of the reasons that film has kind of fallen out for me, I've, I've fallen out with film a little bit, is because there's... Uh, it's so... Hollywood is so manipulative. And... And... They, and I just started to feel like it was, it didn't feel, nothing felt real. I always just felt like it was, it's like 
like it's like if you go to Las Vegas or something. It just it just feels like you're being hustled, pretty much from the moment like you you know, you get off the plane, and that's the way film started to feel. I just felt like I was being hustled. Um, mm-hmm. And the Dogma ninety five stuff seemed like these. This was a a response. It was at least a challenge. Can you make a film without using the kind of without using all the sugar, right? Because that's really what a lot of what we're talking about here. And I think that's kind of the way I felt like I felt like Hollywood had really perfected the ability to, you know, make you just want more, um, but not in a healthy way. And the Dogma 95 thing seemed like at least they were saying, okay, let's see if you can, can you create that? Can you do it with acting and, and with, with cinematography? Can you shoot a film that's powerful and beautiful without using like specific, you know, like using music, for instance, or, um, or special, you know, uh, uh, what do you call it? Sound. What do you call it when you do the sound? What's it called? Um, or special effects, but there's like, just, what do you sound design? Yeah, I guess sound design would be right. Um, and, um, so the dogma, there's some really interesting films. It's, was either Lars Van Trier with this other or another, they're really, they're crazy films. And I was fascinated by it because, I, but also I think what was fascinating to me about it because it gave me a sense that there was an ensemble, you know, that these were like people that worked together. And I like that. I'm really drawn to that sort of thing. Like you would see the same people appearing in these indie films. And they're, they're a little roughshod, but they're, you know, kind of, I was interested. I was like, who are these people? And, they're, and they seem driven. Like they're going to make a fucking movie. And I respect that. Like, I respect it when people are like, yeah, I'm just making a movie. And it doesn't matter. You know, and, you know, and, and I'm sure that I imagine that people, there's issues, you know, people that are a lot of haters out there. Um, that's okay. I've made a lot of music that people said a lot of nasty things about. But I made it. <laughs> right? I right. made it. And that's more than most people. Like, that's the thing. You got to make it. I once I once said that the only good the only good song is one that's actually finished. You can't and people. I couldn't so agree people, more. What's that? I couldn't agree more. I mean, I think there are yeah. a lot of people that talk a lot about doing things, um, but I think it is in the doing in which then that separates, right. you know, uh, most of the crowd. Uh, you know, and it's and you know I. I, I personally, I, I like to work fast on things and get things done and, and, and I don't like to necessarily tinker and because I just like the doing, I like the, the process of doing that. And, and, you know, I don't know for me that that's, what's really fulfilling about creating anything. Right. Um, well, speaking of which, what's, what's going on with the, what's with the new album and, uh, and, 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 and any sort of, uh, plans for that i know the the whole world's hiatus here has affected things what's the latest with with the new record oh i mean i I certainly wasn't calling to talk to you about the record but i will just i just just on the side i'll tell you that uh um oh we don't we don't have to no no, i don't mind i'm just saying i just just don't want i don't i think that i'm sensitive about this because i think that so much anytime you hear somebody on a being interviewed they have something to sell Mm -hmm. and i find that really grating I just find it grating. Oh, right. Like, you, like in this situation, you <laughs> called me because you want to talk about film. So I was like, yeah. yeah, I mean, I can talk to you about film. I'm not going to give you a double feature, but I can talk. 
I can talk about any goddamn thing practically. I've thought about it, and I and film is fascinating to me. Um, but just in a, well, your double a, feature now is is been your double feature is Woodstock and Caligula. I'm just going to call it. Yeah, for there, you now. there you go. And then well, I was going to say one last. I, I I probably should get off the phone pretty soon. You have way too much to deal with already here. But I was going to mention that in terms of film, <clears throat> you know, Jim Cohen he made the Fugazi movie Instrument, but Jim really approaches film from a really um, he's eccentric and. But he has an incredible vision, uh, and his I think his compositions are incredible, and his sense of editing is <clears throat> almost um, spooky. Uh, I can't say his films are easy necessarily, but not everything that is good for you is easy. Uh, when we made the instrument film, you know, Jem really had, and we made it with him. It was sort of a Jem Cohn Fugazi production. And we consider it sort of a, what we call a visual record, right? You know, and and as we used to say, you know, it's not a documentary, but it's true. It's not a concert film, but there's some footage of us playing live. It's not a narrative, but there's somewhat of a story, you know. But if you look at it, the chronology of the film is really goes all over the place, and it's more of a meditation on the band and the band's experience. Right, right. Um, yeah, that was my takeaway. And like the beginning of the film, the first like footage of us playing, the first song is pro- I think it's eight minutes long. That's a big ask, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, just start off with a song, a band playing a song that long. But I think that's sort of the the point was, and then Jim Roy May said, that, you know, you got to get into, you got to, you got to commit. You got to get into the med- you, know, you got to get into the, the rhythm. You know, you have to get into the, the chant, of of the experience, and I really, I think that those you know working on that film with him was very interesting. This we uh, did this we sh- we, go ahead. Oh no, I, I was just gonna say I, I really like that sentiment. I think that's a really really interesting and kind of pure sentiment and way to look at it. You know, um, I think a lot of people are a little bit fear-based too when when selecting the opening minutes of a film, you know? And I think that, that that kind of throws all that to the wind and really stays true to where this was coming from and, and you know, and doesn't make any concession about that. I like that a lot. And I think Jim, like, we made, <clears throat> he shot this, this all started because Jim had been filming um, Super 8, he had Super 8 footage of us playing live. Of course, it's all silent. It wasn't sound. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was such beautiful footage, mostly black and white, but really just beautiful, beautiful footage. And we were puzzling over how we could ever, what we could do with it, how we could ever use it. We didn't make rock videos, even though MTV was a king at that time. But we just, we would never, that was just not something we would do. Um, so, uh, or music videos. So we, um, we kind of mulled it over. And at some point, we got to think like, well, you know, maybe we should do like Jem should shoot 16 millimeter sound of a couple of shows. Um, and then we'll use and then we also had at that point, I mean, hundreds of videos people sent us with they'd shot our shows on, on you know video. Right. And right. though the quality was not necessarily good, there were some pretty incredible moments captured. Mm-hmm. So that's when we thought like we could use all this stuff as sort of like all part of the recipe 
And then the thing about the Super 8 stuff, we can provide a soundtrack for it. And Fugazi, you know, we compulsively recorded practices. We had so many demos, instrumental demos all the time. We had all this recording that we loved, but it was not something we would release because it was just sort of for us. Mm -hmm. It wasn't like, we weren't thinking like, oh, here's something we're going to put out into the world. We just were thinking... We love the way it sounds. Um, one thing about when you record, when you're making a record, you're aware of other people's ears. When you're recording a demo, you're aware of your own ears, and you're much more forgiving, right? Because you're not worried about what other people are thinking. You're just playing. So when we played the stuff we had recorded, we were really relaxed, and you can hear that com- compared to the albums. So we thought, great, we already have a soundtrack. We have hours of this stuff and we can put together our own soundtrack and it was like this perfect combination of 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 material that we could put all together and make this film but it was a real experience editing that thing very intensive i had to actually at some point i had to remove myself because we could we had a seven hour version of it or four and a half hour version of it we had to get it down to make it shorter and it was hard Really hard to cut stuff out. It is, man. Yeah. It is. It's one of the hardest things ever. So that was a really, that was quite an education. Um, But, you know, I learned a lot. And maybe someday I'll make a movie. Who knows? I'm 58. I got a couple years. Well, I look forward to it. Yeah, yeah. I look forward to it. Keep me posted. Um, Well, I'll let you go, man. I I really, I really appreciate you, uh, you hopping on with me and and talking about films. This was, this was fun. I appreciate it. Just real quick before we go, I just just wanted to say, um, I just wanted to thank you as well. Uh, You know, your music has meant a lot to me since I was, uh, you know, a teenager through today. And um, I just wanted to thank you for the countless hours of, uh, of really, really inspiring, um, art and music that you've made over the years. It, it's been deeply meaningful to me, and so I just wanted to say thanks when I have you on the phone here. Well, as I, I always say, on behalf of music, you're welcome. I can't really... That. <laughs> it's like, that's the way... I mean, I always tell people, like, music kicked my ass, and I only intended to return the favor. And so people often will thank me, and I, I get it. I understand. It feels weird sometimes, um, but I, you know, but I get it because I feel the same about, you know... My, my the stuff I see, I'm so inspired by, and I think, oh yeah, that's a reason to get up. And like I always tell people, I'm not listening to music; I'm studying it. <laughs> right, right, right. So, <laughs> all right, I can listen to it too, but usually when I'm sweeping. Otherwise, yeah. <laughs> you know, but it's, it's, the... it's yeah, it's you know, music is doing its work, and that's the way it is with film too. Yeah. All right. I agree. Good luck. All right, man. I'll see. Thanks you. so much. Later. All right. Talk to you later. Bye. So that's the show. Really wonderful conversation, and I was tremendously happy to have Ian on. I thank him for being on the program today. Keep an eye out for his new album, or listen to a couple of tracks now on the Quiriki Bandcamp website, and you can pre-order the record there as well. If you like the show, make sure that you subscribe, rate, and review it on whatever platform you are using to listen, and follow us on Instagram at Contiki Podcast. I post weekly double feature recommendations there as well, so stay up to speed on all things Contiki Podcast on Instagram. I'll be back next week with another exciting guest and a true double feature film recommendation. Until then, 
Keep your head about you in this surreal landscape we're all occupying and be kind to one another. We'll see you next time.